like in my motivation or my heart is, uh, you know, it's not an in-depth Bible study. We are going to do that. We're going to go through the Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount, I think, next time. Um, but I just want you guys to be ready and prepared because it's come to my attention that there are so many Christians, when it comes to these kinds of objections to the faith that are getting more amped up, more serious, more sophisticated, it really kind of throws us off our game a little bit as Christians. If you don't know like anything about that, and then, like with our health study a little bit, some of those, I mean, for seasoned Christians that are well-studied and well-read, you know, you can handle those. But so many of us, just over the years, really haven't had that teaching or are very familiar with, or it's been a long time. And the same thing with, with these uh, textual criticism. It's kind of sophisticated attack on the reliability of the Bible, because what they want to do and what Satan wants to do is to have us not believe the Bible, right? If they could shake us up a little bit on that, then they kind of win the day, and we can't allow that to happen. So I am not an expert by any stretch in this area of textual criticism. I had one semester of it in seminary in 1996, right? Now, through the years, we've kind of kept up with it, hey, Lee, um, you know, kept up with it. Um, but, you know, most pastors, a lot of pastors, are like doctors. Like, if you think about doctors, we're like general practitioners. We know a little bit about a lot of things. <laughs> um, some, some more than others, right? Uh, but this is an area of expertise. And that's also why it's a little more obscure, maybe a little more, I don't know, really haven't heard this about this too much. But it's a real concentrated area of, of theology and um, you, you know at one time it was just kind of in the academic circle really you didn't have too many lay people know about it but over the last 10 14 15 years it's really come out to the public it's been made popular so you are going to have people that are going to come up to you and say how could you trust the Bible I think my son William on one of his flights another flight attendant was kind of bringing up these kinds of objections you know how could you trust the Bible we don't know. Do you have the originals, and how could you, how could you know what that's actually said? You know, so just so we have something that we can go back to. We're not going to be experts, but we can hold our own, and then kind of go from there. That's kind of the reason I want to do this, because tonight we're really going to get into um, the actual textual criticism itself, the the whole theological science behind it. So let me pray, and we'll get going. Father in heaven, you thank you and praise you. Thank you for these lovely, wonderful people coming out tonight. And I just pray that this is a, a worthwhile time for us, that we're a little more uh, edified, stronger, confident in our faith and in your word, or we're able to handle those objections that come to us, and they're coming to us in such great frequency and with great fervency, Lord God. And uh, we need that, need to be able to take that stand and be able to Give an answer, a rational, biblical answer for the hope that we have within us. So I just pray, and in that way, this class will be profitable. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I'm going to do tonight, again, since I'm not an expert in this area, and it's, it's a great area of study, and some people just take to it and they get into it. It's, it's really deep. Again, it's more scholarly, and there's different... Um, arguments made for what should be in and what shouldn't be in and how do we know and comparing this manuscript with that manuscript and all those kinds of things. So what I've done in, in the last several years, um, I've really latched on to uh, an expert in this field, 
wonderful Christian man, uh, Dr. Daniel Wallace, if that name rings a bell to anybody. He's really um, just, for, for years, he's been considered a top scholar in this area, Dan Wallace. Um, and he does these presentations. So what, what you're going to get tonight, I have to give full credit to him. Again, I know, and I'll be bringing my own ideas into this as well a little bit, but for the most part, you're going to be hearing what Dan Wallace brings forth. I don't want to take credit for anything. I'm giving him full credit now, <laughs> just in case that, you know, um, not just in case, I'm just doing it because it's like, and throughout this lecture, I'll be referring to Wallace, so you'll hear me keep going back to him. So just so you know that, um, I really rely heavily on him and others as well. James White, uh, for instance, um, Dr. Michael Kruger, these guys are really good as well. But this is really Dan Wallace's kind of presentation as an introduction into biblical criticism, which I hope is helpful. So, all right, here we go. Um, in his presentation, Dan Wallace talks about how this has gained popularity, how it's come into the mainstream, this whole idea of textual criticism, and how it affects us as Christians. How many of you have heard of Dan Brown, the author? Dan Brown. How many of you have heard of The Da Vinci Code? Okay, that's he's the author of The Da Vinci Code, a million, zillion seller. And really what it comes down to is almost this idea of the textual criticism. It's a, it's a fiction book and then the movies and everything like that. But it's come into the mainstream and has helped raise the objections to or questions about can you trust uh, the Bible. So Dan Brown says this, that the Bible, and this is him, his true belief, the Bible has evolved through countless translations and additions and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. It has been translated, copied, and copied so many times that we cannot possibly get back to the original. So very popular. People buy into this. Of course, skeptics, atheists, you know, enemies of Christ love to hear this and love to use it against us. Um, Newsweek. This is from 2014, December 23rd. You know, back when the periodicals were very popular, they're still out there all the time around the holidays, around Christmas and then Easter. They'll have something about Jesus. You know, was he really born? Blah, blah, blah. So this article is from uh, December 23rd, 2014. And it's entitled, The Bible is So Misunderstood, It's a Sin. Catchy, huh? It says, quote, No TV preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I and neither have you. At best, we've all had a bad translation, a translation of translations, uh, of handwritten copies, of copies of copies of copies of copies. Another way of saying that. Um, C.J. Warleman, I don't know if that rings a bell, an atheist, prominent atheist, says this, we do not have any original manuscripts of the Bible. The originals are lost. We don't know when. We don't know uh, by whom they were written. What we have are copies of copies, in some cases going to the 20th generation. Now that's really far-fetched. So all these things are really popular and taking hold in, in the culture. So we want to try to equip us so we're at least familiar with it. So if this comes up, you're, you're not going to be taken off guard. What happens, a lot of kids, younger people especially, um, and you know, Christians across the, the spectrum, 
but especially the college kids, they go they go in and they hear this kind of thing and they're like, what? We that, the Bible's not the word of God. We don't have the originals. I thought we have what they wrote, right? Right away. So that that's a shock to the system, and then. You know, they, they're intimidated to thinking, well, can we really trust this? And it really begins with our good old friend, Bart Ehrman. <laughs> Bart D. Ehrman, he is the man of all men. Everything that I've read to you so far really comes from Ehrman. He, he really put this discipline on the map into the popular culture. Um, again, he's a distinguished professor. He's still teaching down in North Carolina, Charlotte. Is that what it is? Tar Heels. That's, um, uh, and, and he he has had tremendous. He is very confident speaker. He's very articulate. Like I, I mentioned before, he was the best student, the top student of um, Metzger or Lutz. I think it's Metzger, um, who who's a, who was the the renowned um, biblical scholar. <clears throat> and so he was like his top student. Um, he knows his stuff. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. And he started off being more like a skeptic, you know. First evangelical, went to all the evangelical schools, got all his degrees, and then became skeptical. Now he's at the point where he's basically just denying the faith. He's basically an atheist. But he's really the one that had brought it into the mainstream. And he did that. He was on the John Stewart show many years ago now. And after that appearance on the John Stewart show, when he talked about his book misquoting Jesus, that's what he that's where all this is coming from. Um, within two days, his book sold 100,000 copies, and now it's in the millions of copies. That particular book, he's had other books since you know, beforehand since then, but um, he's really put this in the public square, and that's why I think it's important for us at least to be familiar with it. We're not going to be experts in biblical criticism. We're not asking you to be, but just so we know. And so you're not caught off guard in, in that way. Um, he believes, uh, Ehrman, that the text of Scripture has been radically altered over the years by the scribes. So when we start talking about this, there's two attitudes that we need to avoid as Christians. The first one is radical skepticism. That's what Dan Wallace says. We can't be – there are people that are saying there's no way, no way you can ever get back to what you know the, the Gospels writers actually wrote or what Paul actually wrote. There's no way. It's a hopeless, hopeless endeavor. Just forget about that. Uh, the Bible is viewed just like any other book. Now, this is – remember, this is where I want you guys to hold on to the last couple of weeks, the things that we've learned about the Scriptures – Never forget that. Always hold on to that. Those are the life preservers because you're going to hear things like this. That it's just like any other book ever written. It's subject to um, all these errors and faults. So you really can't necessarily trust it at all. Uh, for many people, it's filled with myths, mythical teaching, wishful thinking, those silly miracles that everybody believes in. Uh, does anybody know what Thomas Jefferson did? To, did you ever hear the Jefferson Bible? Thomas Jefferson, what he did with Scripture? What he did? He took he took scissors and he cut all the supernatural elements, all the miracles out of it. He said, you know, so this makes it a good book for practical living. So Sermon on the Mount, here's how you treat one another, we love each other, but get rid of all the miracles. That's what he did, and that's kind of what's behind this. It has some use maybe just as a ethical teaching, as long as you don't take that too far either. Um, it's written, to, other people say it's written to control people. That's a big deal. 
through fear, hell, fire, brimstone, guilt, and manipulation, which, you know, there's a little bit of truth in that, can't be, but that's not why it is. So we want to avoid the first attitude of radical skepticism, that there's no way that we can get back to the originals. The second attitude that we need to cultivate and be careful about is, as Christians, having absolute certainty. Okay? It's a little, I'm going to explain that because we do have absolute certainty on the one hand. Remember the last couple of weeks. We're absolutely positive this is God's word, inspired word. We looked at the evidence for that and the teaching on that. The Bible is the word of God. But is it the word, is every single word in there the word or the words of God? That's a little bit tricky. It's a little bit tricky. It's a little dicey. The answer to that, and Wallace says it, and I agree with him, is not in every respect. Not in every respect. It is the word of God. We trust it. It's holy word. But in every respect, we have to be careful on that. And we have to say, hmm, okay? Are you with me so far? Don't think I'm going off the reservation because I'm not. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I want to preface this the last two weeks. Uh, this is why we have different... Revisions of scripture, uh, scholarship, when we find manuscripts, they, they compare them uh, together to see, see what's in there what's not. Now remember what C.S. Lewis said, the miracles are the miracles, but when they come into the realm, they're, st- they're, they're still susceptible to being part of this world. So supernatural wine will still get you drunk, supernatural birth, birth, um, inc- conception will still have a baby. Um, supernatural healing, people will still get sick, that kind of thing. When his word comes supernaturally, by miraculous means, when men are copying it, they're still susceptible to making errors in that way. And that's what we're talking about here. But we're not talking about inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy, everything we've talked about in the last two weeks. That stands very much. So we are very certain, much more than skeptical, and, and not only because of the, the internal evidence, but also the, the external evidence. And we're not really going to get into this in this class, but all the archaeology, everything that they're finding, everything that they found really confirms, and nothing has ever, ever um, proved Scripture to be wrong. So everything that they're finding and have found confirms what Scripture actually teaches. And so even many skeptics will say, well, that can't be because you know we just haven't found anything. Well, then they found something, and then that confirms what the Bible says. So all of these things um, lead us to be certain in that way. Now, the thing is, since we don't have the autographs, we don't have what Paul actually, when he was writing, wrote down, that, that one right there, um, the, the whole goal of this is try to get back to what Paul wrote. That's the whole idea behind textual criticism. We want to get back to the originals. Um, what we do have are copies and next week we're going to talk about how many copies we have that makes it so much easier to, to say, yes, okay, we're, we could get to the originals for sure, what they actually wrote. We could trust this is what Paul wrote, what the gospel writers wrote, uh, especially when you compare it with other writings of that day. We're going to go and look at how close in terms of date to the original writings of first copies were made. Again, we'll compare it with writings of antiquity, and you're going to see, oh my gosh, you know, if you believe any ancient history, history book, which you should, because, you know, again, archaeology is proving that true. When they dig out, like Pompeii, it's perfectly preserved. That's how history was. So these writers, um, like Josephus, 
and um, Tacitus, these are ancient writers, what they were writing about, you could trust that, even though we don't have, like, their, certainly we don't have the originals, but we don't even have early copies. We're waiting hundreds of years before we have the first copy of that. So, anyway, that's all next week. <laughs> Here you confidence that week. But what we do is, what we do is we have the copies, and the thing with the copies, though, now, if we had copies and they were all the same, that's cool. That would be great. You know, like we could be really sure that's exactly what Paul wrote. We might not have the original, but, you know, they would take that, that letter from Romans and they would copy that down and make copies of it and send it to other places. That's, this is what they would do. And then later on, you have professional scribes actually making copies and so on and so forth. But the problem is, and you know this. Even when I go back to my writings, I have such a tendency to leave off the last letter of words. I don't know why. And I go back to it. It's like, how did I do that? I, mean, I might even read it like two or three times before I catch my error. But anytime you're copying something, there's going to be what are called variants. It's not going to be a perfect copy. So even the closest copies that we have, the manuscripts of the New Testament, still have like two errors per forget page or something like that for I forget how many paragraphs so there's still just those kinds of things so that's basically mainly what we're talking about here so we don't want to get all crazy when you hear how many variants they are they're called variants so what is a variant let's see um oh did you are you taking the notes of radical skepticism i'm sorry i'm not filling it in radical says there is no way to get back um Absolute certainty, the Bible is the word of God, but is every word the word of God? Not in every respect. Do you get that? I know Leela loves to fill in the blanks. <laughs> it keeps her awake. Uh, <laughs> so a textual variant is this. It's simply um, very simple. Very simple. The, the simplest way to put it is this. Any place among the manuscripts, that's among the copies, in which there are any variations in wording, including word order, Omission, addition, spelling differences, that kind of thing. So any, anywhere where there's a, a variation. And what they do, what the scholars do, is they compare the manuscripts, see which ones have you know, the majority that are closest to each other, earliest manuscripts, and that gives us more certainty of what we actually have is, is what Paul actually wrote or what the writers of Scripture actually wrote. Now, very quickly, five kinds of variants, five kinds of errors in this way. Um, the first one is omission. Omission. When they're comparing with other manuscripts, it's lacking a word, a phrase, or a sentence. You just kind of forget, you know, if you're copying things, sometimes you just miss a word. That's a variant. And then the other copies have that. That's, that counts. Additions. This is a big one. Um, if a word or words are added to the text, it could be the, the smallest variant is one word. The largest variance that we have in the scriptures, anybody take a guess? Did I, did I have it written down there? Oh, it's already down there. Okay. Yeah, wow. How'd you know that? <laughs> the largest variant in scripture is 12 verses. And that seems like a lot. And that, that's, that is a decent number. The next largest variant is two verses, but most are two or three words, okay, in terms of, um, in terms of the additions in that way. So, for instance, um, what kind of versions do you guys have? What, who has ESV? Rats. 
Who has NIV on you, with you? Who has King James or New King James? Okay, good. That's good. <laughs> so, um, to, to, we'll go to John later. Let's go to Mark chapter 16 right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick you. Yeah, you, you got everything. So you can get all the versions on your computer. I'll count on you, Kevin, for that one I, if we need other translations. So, let's go to the Gospel of Mark. And this is one of the variations that we have. Mark chapter 16. And this is called the long ending of Mark. It's at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Why don't I go back on this? And... Um, so let me read this. Uh, we're doing Mark right now. I'm sorry. Uh, do I have Mark? We'll go back to John because that's another variant we're going to look at a little more closely. But I just want you to see this. So when you're reading your Bibles, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salomon brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went out to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where he's laid. But go and tell his disciples, Peter. And Peter, that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as I told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, that's where the ending of Mark is, in the earliest and the best manuscripts that we have. And that's what we always, I mean, sometimes later manuscripts, if they, it gets a little complicated, can be more accurate than others if they were faithfully copied along the way. But 99% of the time, you want to obviously get back to the earlier ones, like the, the ones that the closest to uh, the date of the original writing. So did you guys have a note beginning at verse 9 or brackets or something like that in your Bible? the earliest manuscripts do not include. Yeah. What does King James? Anything? Nothing. Okay, that's good. Does King James? they got to follow right along with that. Uh, NIV, anybody have NIV? Does it have anything there for NIV? Like a bracket or a little note? No. Okay. Um, but see, they, they did go bracket it, they'll put a little note here, and that's, and that's the idea, because some of the earliest manuscripts do not include this. It is on the, it is on the NIV. Yeah, I, I think it's only like King James and maybe a couple other more obscure um Translations don't have anything bracketed or any notes. Now that's important because people are going to say, "Well, see, that's that can't be the word of God." That what that's an animal. No, it's beautiful because if it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, we're getting back to the word of God. So we don't like with Islam, they say there's only one copy of the Quran. That's not true. There were more, but they got rid of all the everything else. So this is the definitive one. It has to be from this particular person. I forget what it is. But they don't allow for this. This is what I love about Christianity because it is honest. Now what happens here, like over the years, they said that scribes put this ending on here. And what would be some reasons you would think that a scribe might add or a scribe might add on to this? 
in their heart, their intentions, what their intentions might be. If you think about this, when he says that, they didn't say anything for fear of, because they were afraid. So is there any reason you might think that, you know, why they might add this ending? There was personal stories or traditions that had what they, who they talked to. Yeah, and they and they want and they they wouldn't want to do that because they were they were scribes were uncomfortable with with them saying, and they trembled and seized them with fear. They didn't tell anybody. Well, no, they had to tell somebody. You know, we know from the other gospels, although they'll say Mark's the earliest gospel and the others borrowed from him, but you know the other gospels said so they went and they told them. So they wanted to to kind of add the you know the the longer ending on to it. Um, because they weren't comfortable. But the bottom line is the earliest manuscripts don't have this. But what's really cool, when you read the Greek, the actual Greek, they have what's called an apparatus. And they have all the variants there too. So this is what scholars debate on and they go back and forth on and should it be included. And so translation committees make those decisions. We're going to you know, bracket this. We'll put it in, but we'll bracket it. Or we will leave it out, or we won't say anything, right? So that's up that that those committees make those decisions. But what's really cool when you have the Greek, you have all of that. I have a Bible. It's called the New English uh, ver- translation. It's called the Net Bible, but it has this is the English version of the Greek, but it has all the variants and all the apparatus. So I'm just going to show you because we're going to go to First Thessalonians. That's the text. But these are all the variants referring to the manuscripts. <laughs> and why they chose these particular words in here. You know, so between this and this, we have the word of God. I just want to show you guys because it's so cool. This is what every page is like. So that's the text. And these are talks about all the variants and why they're in here. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? And so they'll explain why they made those decisions. Isn't that cool? They have Here's the text, and here's where they talk about all the variants and why they make decisions that have certain schools to turn on based on manuscripts that they found. So within this and this, we have, we can be sure that we have what's written. I want you to really understand that, because there's still the human, even not in the originals. In the originals, absolutely pure 100%, God by the Holy Spirit. When we start copying, we make those Mistakes is very so, and we're not here to talk about like, you know, we're not going to talk about Mark all night. Why, why not? This, that, and the other thing. That's not part of this class. That could be another class. It's a really good discussion. But what I just want to show you is you understand why some translations have it, why others don't. It's really based on the manuscripts, the number of manuscripts, the the date of the manuscripts. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, good. That's uh, additions. And then number three, the three third error is transposition. That's what it's called, transposition. Uh, change in a word order. So in some places it might say in the same verse, um, and Christ Jesus said. And another translation might say, and Jesus Christ said. You know what I mean? So they just kind of transpose. It doesn't make any difference at all. It doesn't make a lick of difference at all to, to it. But there are thousands of these as in the manuscripts. That's why. Um, and then substitution. 
Uh, you substitute one word for another. In John 4, 1, one version will say, when Jesus knew. And then another version will say, when the Lord knew. That's a variant. That's a variation. There's a variant there. So, um, that's why we, we don't need to be overly concerned with that. So, yeah, let's go to page two. So I call them pesky. They're pesky. These variants are pesky. There's, there's a lot of them. So, what are the number of variants? And this one's, this gets a little scary. Um, the number of textual variants in the New Testament, there are 1,000, I'm sorry, 138,162 words in the Greek New Testament. 138,162 words. For every word in the New Testament, there are about approximately two and a half variants. Okay. So that means... Drawn, drawn out, that's a huge number. Between 400,000 and 500,000. So Bart Ehrman will say, there are more variants in your New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. And he's absolutely right. And, but, but when you hear that, there's more mistakes. That's, what, that's the implication. In your New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. But he doesn't tell people about the nature of the variants, like what we're talking about here. Um, that's... Our time's up now. Now we have to leave. I want to leave you with this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now it's time to go. With all these variants, right now you're probably like, what? All these. The next step in the process, and we're just going through this, just so you know, what are the nature of the variants? And this is really important because they're going to throw out these numbers and say, see, there's so many mistakes. You can't trust your Bible. How do you know what he wrote? How do you know they're going to get back there? This says this, that says that. You can't have any, and that really shakes you up. It it can't. And so many have walked away from the faith. They just can't reconcile this. They're, imagine being a college student on your first day in class, and your professor throws something like this at you in your religious studies classes. What are you going to do? You're going to freak out probably, unless you know your stuff. So if you know this a little bit, at least you'll have something to hold on to, right? And plus, we, we've talked about it in the last couple of weeks. Um, the nature of the textual variance. Uh, there are two two poles, two two ends that we need to be concerned with. First is meaningful, like how meaningful does that variance variant change the meaning of the text, okay, to some degree, and if it does, to what degree, and then viability, how viable, what's the likelihood, the possibility of that going all the way back to the original. See, so meaningful and viable. So what, what are the nature of these variants? And this, this should give us, um, you know, more confidence. I mean, we have confidence anyway, but I'm just saying, if you don't have confidence, it should give you confidence. So the first one is uh, neither meaningful nor viable. The variant doesn't affect the meaning of the text and doesn't go back to the original in any single way. It doesn't have a chance of doing that. That's the first one. Neither meaningful but perhaps viable. These two, the two ideas right here about meaning and viability, changing the meaning or being actually being traced back to the original, these variants make up at least over 75% of all the variations in the New Testament. So you could just take 75 plus percent good. You know, that that's what these are made of. And they have no, not the slightest effect 
on the meaning. There's no way that it could have been originally written in this way. Early manuscripts don't have this. You know, there's, the idea behind is what kind of variant the spelling changes for the most part. Um, in Greek, first of all, spelling wasn't a huge priority, but even in Greek, there's like eight different ways to spell John, you know, or, or you know, John loves Mary. There's like hundreds of combinations of doing that. Each one would be considered a variant, like that different kind of spelling. That would be considered an error. Um, there's also in Greek what's called the movable new. New in, in Greek is kind of the letter for N. So the movable new, there's thousands of these variants in scripture. And that's, that's the uh, letter N at the end of the word when the next word begins with a vowel. So for instance, if I have an apple, what are you going to say? That is an apple. Right? Exactly. Um, if I say I have a, a, a book in my hand, this is a book. Well, there are thousands of places where that's used differently in Greek, you know, the movable new. That's counted as a variant. So there's thousands and thousands of these. So, so now you, you can take away so many of them with one fell swoop in that way. So it's not meaningful or viable. So we don't want to be intimidated by this idea, oh, you can't trust your Bible because of all these mistakes, of all these errors. Then the next two, a little more. Um, I'm going to be done nice and early tonight. I could see you guys are tired too. Oh, we should have done by eight. Um, meaningful but not viable. In other words, it might mess with the meaning to some degree, but it no way goes back to the beginning. For this, I want you guys to turn to First Thessalonians, including King James, NIV, and ESV. We'll do those, those guys. First Thessalonians, chapter two, verse seven, and. Lady, do you have ESV? Yeah. What's ESV say? But you were gentle, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Okay. We were gentle among you. NIV. Instead, we were like young children among you. Yeah, then go on. You could read the rest of that. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children. Okay. And King James? But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes the virtue. Okay, so I'm going to read from the apparatus here on this verse. The variant epimoi is gentle, means gentle, has support, and it tells the manuscripts that have this, that word, gentle. Then he goes on to say, but hapimoi, or I'm sorry, napimoi, literally little children, has significantly stronger backing. So the NIV, the idea, so here's what scholars do when they see something like this. Now, very interestingly, if you're into this stuff, you would love it. And you'd be like, ah, oh, those two words, like Andy, this is very technical, like those minutiae things, this is what it is. So the, the, the word for gentle in the Greek is hepoi. And for little children is Napoi. So it's just adding one little letter to the front of that. And that could be a scribal error. So both of these have backing. And, and then it comes up to the translation committee. Which one 
make sense because even the first one can be translated, the little children one, can be translated um, gentle and kind. Now, there is a word for gentle there as well. So, you know, more texts have what NIV puts down, like little children. But as scholars are thinking about this, what makes more sense? Does it make sense to say we were like little children among you <laughs> and like nursing mothers? Or are we gentle like a nursing mother among you? And, and the words, again, that, that word can mean gentle. But there's a, there's a more primary word for gentle and has just one letter. And some manuscripts have that letter and others don't. Now, the earliest ones have the little children one. And that's why they would choose to, to put that in there. So do you see that, that, that that's meaningful to a degree? You know, we're like little children among you. What's that mean? We're like little kids among you. Or were we gentle among you like a nursing mother? That's what they wrestle with. That's what they go with. What would be said then? And so some make the decision to put little children. Others make the decision to put gentle. Does that make sense? See, if you're into this stuff, it's really, really cool. I mean, people love it. They get This is their life's for me, it's like, ah, it's like, crazy if I was just too much. But, you know, I, somebody like Andy, who would, no, 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 look, here's what this says, and here's what this manuscript says, and they, they examine them, and they, then they make those decisions based on that. But, even in the apparatus, they will have both of these, like I just read here, and it says, one says this, one says that. Between that, we have the word of God that would go back to the original. That's what you need to understand and get. And that's what people aren't going to say to you. So they'll, they'll point out something like this. So there, there are a lot of these in, in Scripture. Um, the oldest, the majority texts, do say children, but many texts say gentle and so forth. So that's another one. Um, two more real quick we could look at. I'm just giving you an example of these things. Now, there are a lot of these because there are so many manuscripts, but already over 75% gone. So it's just this, the rest that's left over. This is about 25% that are, could be meaningful, but they're not viable. They don't go back to the original, so we don't have to worry that, you know, that that's something, a mistake that was made early on, that, that kind of thing. We could, be, we could trust it. It doesn't go back to the originals. So go to John uh, chapter 8. I'm sorry, John chapter 7. Um, I'm sorry. Blah. Eight. Wait a second. At 7.53 to 9.11, I think. John. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. John, John, John. Where's it begin? Does it begin in 7.53 or 8? Seven. Yeah, 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 yeah. 7.53. Day. I made a mistake on the outline. Okay. Now, how many of you have heard... Um, so, NIV, do you have brackets around it, beginning in verse 8, chapter 8? Do you have anything there, brackets or a little note? Yeah, at the end of, the end of chapter 7. Okay. At the end of chapter 7, ESV, do you have anything... King James, do you have anything? At the end of chapter 7, any brackets, any note? Okay, that's right. That's because the NIV did not do that. Um, what version do you have? English, ESV. Okay, yeah, she's with me. It doesn't have it. 
Her says I don't even have the verse. <laughs> like you're saying in 50. No, you have it right there. The earliest manuscript. I know, but 53 7. That's. Where is it? Oh, it's right there. See, that's 53. Okay. It's continued it on. Day one, each one to his own house. Okay. And then that starts verse one. Okay. So, could you see how it's bracketed? Okay. 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 You do that. Okay. No. But I'm just, see, this is exciting. Like, you would never be thinking about this. Like, doesn't our Bible say what the Bible says? Now, this whole account, and this is one of my favorite accounts in all Scripture because it's beautiful. This is the woman caught in adultery that, you know, that that the scribes, they wanted to, I'm not going to read it. Uh, they wanted to trap Jesus, and they said, this woman was caught in adultery. You know, you need to stone her because that's the penalty for it. What are you going to do? And what does he do? Okay, let those of you without sin, you cast the first stone. That's very, that's come into popular parlance. They don't say it that much. Well, you know, who's, look, he's casting stones, or you cast the first stone, that kind of thing. And then one by one, starting with the youngest, they drop it because they can't do it, because they know what their motivation was. They were just trying to trap Jesus, all this and that. And then Jesus is writing, you know, in the sand, and then he looks up and says to the woman, you know, go and sin no more, that kind of thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful account. The only question is, is it part of Scripture, part of the original writings, or is it an addition? That's a big, big question. Way beyond this class. <laughs> Way beyond the scope of this class. Um, I'm not even going to turn to it in this. Just let me tell you this about this about this section. Most scholars now believe, and even Dan Wallace, because at one time he said, no, this is... It goes back to the original. It has to be part of Scripture. This is part of Scripture. But he's come to the point to say it's probably his favorite section of Scripture that's not actually in Scripture. He doesn't say that the account did not happen. He doesn't say that. But there's just too much evidence where it's placed. If you know about this passage, what these scholars look at, it doesn't sound, it's not John's writing. Like, if you read John and then you come to this, if you're reading in the Greek, you come to this section, it doesn't sound like him. It's not the same word. It's not the same structure. It's not the same. Remember their own personalities, the way they write? And then right after this, it goes right back to being like John, like the rest of John. Oh, now we're back to John. I don't know. I'm not a Greek. I'm not as proficient in Greek like that. But these are absolutely what the scholars know for sure. The whole structure doesn't fit. In some manuscripts, first of all, it's found in later manuscripts. It's not in early manuscripts. But it's found in different places in John, in different places in uh, different Gospels, in Matthew and so forth. Like they're trying to find a place for it almost. So the woman caught in adultery, most likely added by scribes, ends up in several different places in, in, the, in the Gospel of John. They call it a floating text, which you don't really have. Most manuscripts, you just have the text the way we see it. But now this one was in some manuscripts. It was like in chapter three, and other manuscripts it's like chapter twelve. Here it's in chapter eight. They're trying to find a place for it almost. And again, the structure doesn't match. So the the um, intrinsically, the internal evidence, the vocabulary, the syntax, the style doesn't match John's style. Um, now it's put into the King James version. The earliest and best manuscripts do not contain this. See, that's a big deal. This is one of the biggest variants. But this is where people say, see, that story is not even part of your Bible um, necessarily. Some say, um, again, 
Wallace says, then why do we have it in our Bibles? Dan Wallace will say, because it's a tradition of timidity. It was put in the King James because when they translated the King James from the Greek, they had later manuscripts. Since the King James was was uh, produced, they have found earlier manuscripts, many, 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 thousands and thousands. And so what Erasmus used and oh, two other guys that make the text, Texas Receptus, they were later and they were few. They only used about eight or nine. Not that It's beautiful because... 99.9% of what's in the King James is in the earlier manuscripts, which proves you know, that it goes back. But this one um, is not in the earlier manuscripts. So there's wrestling. People have to wrestle with it. So I so said, why is it still in the Bible? Well, some people say it's a tradition of timidity. We're just afraid to let it go because it's you know, part of the been in there for so, so long, you know, for all these hundreds of years. So that's one reason. But again, Dan Wallace says it doesn't mean that this is not historically true, but it's not believed that John originally wrote this encounter. So that's where I land on this. And I have to because that's where the evidence takes us. And we can't be afraid to do that because scribes, whatever their intentions were, as well as they were, if it's not, if it doesn't go back to the original, then we have to be you know, aware enough to say, well, that doesn't go back, so we're going to... You know, so, so they'll bracket this. Earliest manuscripts don't contain this, but it's in the apparatus. So if it, it was, yes, it's there. If it didn't, then we know that it doesn't change the ultimate scripture. Okay? Does that make sense to you guys? So I want you to be good. So the last, oh, one more. Go to uh, King James Man. Go to Romans 8.1. ESV, King James and I'm not picking on the King James. It's a beautiful version. It's, and it, it's historically accurate and true. <laughs> King James. Well, that's a big deal because <laughs> now you're getting a King James only controversy, and that's a big, big deal because there are groups that say if it's not King James, it's not. I don't know if you're a King James only guy, no. but okay. But there are those that just. That's it. This is the inspired text. It's the truest text. It's you know, it's mystical kind of thing, almost like Roman Catholicism. But that's there's and they're very committed to that, and they know the text is receptive. Pardon me. The Puritans didn't use. They used Geneva. They used Geneva Bible. Um, So Romans eight one. Uh, Mikey Moss, are you Romans eight one? Are you Leela? Are you there? Somebody. ESV. Give me eight one Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation. Those who are in Jesus. Beautiful. King James, give me Romans 1. Therefore, excuse me, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Okay. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Is that an addition? Or is it part of the original? That's a big deal. That's a big, big deal. The consensus on that, and we don't have time to get into it. This is for the further study. If if you're pumped up about this, which nobody seems to be, you're really going to get into this because it is important. And if it if it you know if it strikes a chord with you, it's a fascinating, fascinating area of study. It's really, really good. But with that, with that one in Romans eight, let me say this. 
Um, some manuscripts say there are no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the majority of manuscripts. Majority of translations. NIV, what does Romans 8.1 say if you have that? That's okay. That's fine. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. And so, with King James, New King James, you'll have who do not walk according to the flesh, um, but who walk according to the Spirit. So what happens over the years, you have the... the that's it. That's 8-1. I'm positive. You don't have that, sir. You don't have it. Because what happened, and here's the idea behind it, is that the scribe wanted us to make sure to, to understand that. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Should be enough. But then he wants to say, who do not walk according to the flesh. Which is true. That's very true. That, that's, that makes sense. But does it go back to the original? Or did he put that in there just to, you know, hmm, come on, man. And so you have some manuscripts with that. And then later on, you have other manuscripts that have one, two, and then um, add the positive statement, who walk according to the Spirit. And that sounds good too, right? So there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus who don't walk according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. It sounds good enough. And it all is really good. But we have to be sure that that's exactly what Paul wrote. And it doesn't seem that that is because early manuscripts have just what Lila read. Later manuscripts have what Don read. And later, later manuscripts have what Don read, the, the, the negative and then the positive. Do you understand? So, so the scholars have to wrestle with that when they look at it internally, when they uh, compare all the manuscripts, the earliest ones with the later ones, which ones the majority have, say this, certain thing. So um, it goes back, and it, it's almost like the scribes may have wanted to qualify it. Or even emphasize. Emphasize, negative, positive. But we always, and that's good, I have no, that's very true, it's all true, the sentiment is true, but we have to make sure, does that get back to what Paul actually wrote? Did Paul stop with there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus? The evidence says he did. Understand? It's a big deal. That's, so it could be viable. That's, those are things that go back. And, and then translators make that decision. Like, are we going to add this? Are we going to put this in? Because there are some manuscripts that say that, but there are others that don't. That's up to the committees. That's up to their philosophy, how they're translating it, what they want to put in. I know, we're almost done, Mikey. I'm, I'm jazzed on this one. <laughs> this is pretty good. Uh, and then the last one is both meaningful and perhaps viable. This is less than 1% of all textual variants. As a matter of fact, Dan Wallace says it's less than one-tenth of 1% that the variant might change the meaning and then actually be original. Okay. Now, when you add all up because of all the copies we have, that's about 1,000 or something. I don't know. That seems like a big number, but it's really not when you're comparing all this. So very quick, very cute one is uh, Revelation 13.8. Somebody... Uh, Everybody, everybody, go to Revelation 13:8, ESV, NIV, KJV. It's a good representation of um, different translations. Okay, so uh, NIV, Revelation 13:8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have 
often written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb was slain from, from the creation of the world. Wait, and what's the next verse? 13? Wait a minute. Wait, what's the number? I need, I need the... 13, 13A? 13A. What's 13A? Um, it's that. And all <laughs> 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 it's going right. It's like my 13A. That's my, that's my bad. Um, is it 6, 8, or 8, 13? Did I transpose those? <laughs> what's 8, 13? We want the number of the beast. Oh. <laughs> Where's the number of the beast? Maybe it's 830. Is it? I don't know. Tara, we have to do this. Thirteen eighteen. Thirteen eighteen. Blah. Blah 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 blah. Okay. NIV thirteen eighteen. NIV or um, KJV? It says, Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and in his number is six hundred, three score, and six. Six, six, six. <laughs> Leela? This calls to wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. 666. So popular. That that's fine, but the main six six six. Now six 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 is that number. Step to the four. That's a big deal. Everything, everything, thousands and thousands of books are you know will be gone to the flame if it's not six six six. An idea. So is it? Well, check this out. Of all the manuscripts that we have, we have the most of the gospel. Of course, we have so many. We'll talk about this next week, and then the letters of Paul. But we have relatively few manuscripts from Revelation in comparison. Very, I forget the number. Hopefully next week I'll have it for you. But very few manuscripts from Revelation. And they, you know, they struggled to have that included in the canon. We'll talk about that when we talk about canon. But check this out. There was one manuscript early on that one of the earliest ones that said 616. Right? And then, I think like in 1983 or 1984, another even earlier manuscript of the very few manuscripts from Revelation were found that had 616. So, what do you do? You know, that's a big deal. Because if it is 616, then there's the number of the beast and you know, all, everything from all the dispensations are gone out the window <laughs> to the flames because that's not the number. Right? That's it. Um, but, you know... That's that's 
That's, they wrote, again, that traditional line, it's going to be 666. Dan Wallace thinks it's 666, but he's tempted to put 616. I think it's good to have in the footnotes. Again, is it, is it, will it change meaning? Well, yeah, to a degree. Will it be, can it be viable? Perhaps because the earliest manuscripts haven't. So that's the idea behind that. One more real quick and then we'll be done. Um, we could be here all night and day because there's a lot of these, but it's really interesting to, to look at them. Um, Mark chapter 9, verse 29. Mark 9, 29. We did Romans 8, one out of order. Okay. And then we'll just read all three of these. So NIV, Mark 9, 29. He replied... This kind can come only. Sorry, this kind can come out only by prayer. You know the context. It's the father, his son. They come from the Mount of Transfiguration. My belief, help my unbelief. And this throw, your disciples, your um, disciples, apostles couldn't get rid of this one. And then Jesus says, "This comes out only by what? What does it prayer. say? By prayer. Only by prayer. ESV." Uh, um, and he said to them, "This kind cannot be driven out." By anything but prayer. KJV. And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Okay, now that's a big deal. Because a, a way to remove that kind of demon, to, to, to get rid of that demon, is by prayer and fasting. Well, then you better be praying and fasting because that's it. So that would change the meaning. And there's, there's early manuscripts that have prayer and fasting. But the earliest and the majority of the manuscripts have prayer. Do you see? So that's a big... Now, of course, if you want to fast too, I would, you know, pray, pray and fast before you go do an exorcism. Absolutely. And be praying for that. But if, it's, if it only comes out by prayer, well, then you better really just be... That's what the Lord said. You want to get to that. If it's prayer and fasting, well, then you better make sure you're fasting as well. So you see how it could change the, the meaning in that way? And, and there is enough evidence and there are substantial manuscripts that have prayer and fasting, but the majority of manuscripts and a little bit earlier ones have just prayer. So that becomes a decision that the, that the um, committee makes. You know, we're going to add the both. Do you have a little footnote on that, Andy? Every page has a... Does it have to prayer and fasting? Some manuscripts say, okay, good. What kind of Bible is that? Is it study Bible? What's it say? Study Bible. Study Bible. Okay, so it would be a little more detailed. So some of our script, but but you see this this idea, all these things. People are going to use these things and say, "How could you trust your Bible? It's not. You say it's inspired. You say it's infallible. You say it's inerrant. Yeah, right. There's errors all over the place. It goes not with the originals, and and what we firmly believe and know to be true, and every. Biblical textual scholar will say the same thing, that we have the word of God before us. Even people that aren't necessarily Christians say that, okay? Because if it's not in the actual text, it's in the apparatus, you know, the decisions are made. So just to end our class tonight, um, I do want to quote, there's two quotes that I want, well, here's what you need to know. Let me ask you, the question is this, do any variants... Um, do any theological significant beliefs depend on textual passages? No. 
So there's no passages. Uh, our enemies of the faith and scholars alike just agree, say his deity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, his death on the cross, his bodily resurrection. Even in Mark, he was raised from the dead. Um, um, his ascension into heaven. The main doc- They're not brought into question at all. So the, the most important teachings of our faith are not... Even the enemies will say, well, no, that, you know, there's, there's nothing there that, that we could argue against. But, you know, um, has the essence of the Christian faith been compromised by the scribes? Sir Frederick Kenyon was a scholar. Um, a pa- I can't say the word path person. He was renowned, renowned, renowned in this area of textual criticism. He's famous. And he says this, uh, quote, the general result of all the discoveries and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity is the word of God. What we have in our hands is, remember when I said earlier that um, that the, the, the absolute certainty, we could be absolutely certain that it's the word of God, but it's every single word in it the word of God, as it were, right? That's where the, that's where the battle comes in. We have substantial integrity that it is the veritable word of God. That's what he says. One more quote, and I'll let you go. Um, maybe not in all the particulars, but in substance and, and essence and integrity, we have it. Quote, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variations in the manuscript tradition in the New Testament. Guess who wrote that? Bart Ehrman. <laughs> After everything Ehrman wrote about criticizing Jesus, and he's pressed on that question, I don't know. It's in a paperback copy. Dan Wallace said, and they kind of—I think they've gotten rid of it in subsequent printings. But he said essential Christian beliefs. This guy hates Christianity. He hates the Bible. He doesn't want you to believe it. He says essential Christian Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variations in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. He has other problems with it, but he has to say that. So that gives us great confidence. Is this helpful? So when you get challenged by somebody, don't, you know, I never heard that before. I didn't know that. Now you know. Now you have a foundation. Next time, um, and we might be finished with textual criticism. We might get into canon after that. Uh, we are going to talk about just the wealth, the embarrassment of riches we have in terms of the number of copies, how close they are to the original writings, um, and something else. Anyway, let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you. Thank you again, Lord, for this night. And we have confidence in your word. And Lord, I know some might even say, why do we have to do this? We trust your word. But as I prayed earlier, we do need to uh, have a reason for the hope that lies within us. If the skeptic comes and questions us and we have nothing to say or, we're, or we are bewildered or we're, you know, having to give in to, to them without responding rightly. When the truth is there to be known, then, Lord, um, we want to do all we can to be to be ready, not just for us, not just to defend your word, but to help them, to show them that this is your word of God and that they need Jesus Christ. And they can trust your word, Lord, because it, because it is the very word of God, the truth of God, Lord. So please, again, I just help us to, to be humble, um, to be hungry, to, to, to be willing to learn, to grow, 
and then able to articulate and defend the faith um, that others may come to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.